Aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, I am. Those of you joining us online, we're so glad that you're here, that you found us, and that you've set aside this time to worship God, to sing songs, to participate in prayer, and to hear from God's Word. As we begin this morning, I, I want to share something that just kind of hit me this week. And when I'm familiar with the Christmas story as, as, as I am, I grew up listening to it. I've heard it many, many times. Perhaps you're in the same boat. Maybe it's relatively new to you. And if that's the case, we celebrate that. And each time through it has got new insights. But this past week, something kind of burst off the page into my attention and it was a new insight and in a series titled, Do You See What I See? I thought I should share that with him right off the bat. It has to do with the manger and we talk about the manger and we sing away in the manger and so forth and I love, I love the idea that the bread of life came and was set in a manger, in a feeding trough. But I saw something new this past week and it connects to something I say often which is, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Perhaps you've heard me say that before. Perhaps you even know that's Romans 8, 28. And it's a promise for us in scripture. But I connected that promise to the manger this, this time through the story. You see, the manger is referenced in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus was laid in a manger. But it's also referenced two more times in that story. In verse 12, with the angelic announcement... The angels tell the shepherds in the field that this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So the manger, the special location, the plan B location for Jesus becomes a sign to the shepherds. And, and it's easier for them to find him than going room to room in an inn knocking. You got a baby in there? Might be a little creepy. But he's out in the manger and they can find him. And then in verse 16, as they depart from that angelic announcement, we're told that they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Three times this is communicated to us. And in this case, not only was it easier to find, not only was it a sign that this is the child that we're talking about, but it's a more public setting. More people can come and see the Christ child. So even this plan B manger allowed more people to come and see Jesus on that first Christmas night. Now, I'm sure Mary would have preferred a more private setting. I'm sure she would have preferred the comforts of a room. And yet God uses that and works all things together for the good of those who are called. And so I wonder if there is something in your life, and this is why I decided to share this at the beginning, is there something in your life that feels like a plan B? And yet God might be working that together for the good of those who are called and those who will come to see Jesus. We're in a series titled, Do You See What I See? Last week we began our Advent series looking at the partially informed public with this idea that we would start at those farthest away from Jesus in the Christmas story and get closer and closer as things go on. And like I mentioned last week, for many Christmas is sort of like those magic eye 3D images. You can stare for a long time and never see what you're supposed to see. There are people in our lives, there are people in the world out there who do not see what we see when we see Jesus. They don't see what the big fuss is about at Christmas. And so we must remember them and we must remember that those who don't know what we know about Jesus don't see what we see when we see Jesus. They don't feel what we feel when we sing songs to him 
And so the question is, how can we help them? How can we help them to see what we see? How can we help them to know what we know? How can we make it clear? How can we tell them in a new way? How can we show them through our lives, not just our words? How can we invite them in a way that they will want to lean in and come? That they might see what we see. That they might know what we know. That they might feel what we feel. That they might be where we will be for eternity. Because that's the big picture. That's why it matters so much. How can we love those around us that maybe just don't know what we know yet, but they will someday? And so this week we move a little closer. We move to those who have no room. Those who have no room. That will be our title. Those who have no room for Jesus. There's a reason he was in a manger. There was no room in the end. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And this seems to be accentuated this time of year. In fact, several of my friends have posted an image on social media that makes this point that each of us is an innkeeper who decides if there is room for Jesus. Each of us decides. You see, once we know the truth of the gospel, once we see it, we are forced with a decision. And we awake each day with a decision to make. Will there be room for Jesus in our life today? Will there be room for Jesus in our conversations today? Will there be room for Jesus in our hearts and our minds each day? And as I said, this kind of seems to be overly accentuated at Christmas. There's a lot that comes with Christmas. There's some busyness that comes. And in a world that already seems to celebrate busyness and overcommitment, the idea of adding one more thing can cause many to just feel overwhelmed and to say, I just don't have room for one more thing, let alone a big thing. And so if that's true for us, for believers at Christmas, how much more so for people with overscheduled lives and overcommitted lives that are presented with a gospel that says that Jesus should be the number one thing in our lives. What does that look like and how can we help? And so we'll look at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7. If you have one of our hardcover Bibles here in the room, it's on page 1590. If you're joining us online, I always encourage you to have a Bible open on your lap, but we'll put the scriptures up on the screen as well so that you can follow along. Now, Luke 1 is interesting. Luke 1 talks more about John the Baptist than it does about Jesus. We're introduced to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and to this coming herald. Essentially, John the Baptist is a herald. He is the one who will announce the way for Jesus before his public ministry begins and then the announcement to Mary and so forth. But Luke chapter 2 begins with more of the narrative that we're familiar with. And so we'll read that together. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so that last phrase of verse 7 is where we get this focus, this, this group of people to consider as we approach the Advent season, those who have 
no room. And I'm always intrigued to see how the innkeeper is portrayed in songs, in Christmas plays, in theatrical productions, or in movies and and other pieces of media. Sometimes they're very dismissive and abrupt, and they just slam the door in Mary and Joseph's face. Other times they're somewhat judgmental, and they look at Mary's belly, and they look at Joseph, and they put two and two together, and they're not married, and it's obvious, and they're judgmental in some way. Other times, they're maybe a little bit more sorrowful, that they can't do more to help, or sometimes they do help. In certain movies, I know even the, the, the innkeeper brings fresh straw. I'm sorry, this is all we have, but I can at least give you fresh straw. And the innkeeper's wife helps Mary with the delivery and, and assures her, however it's presented, however it's depicted, that all the people have one thing in common. They don't have room for Jesus and for those carrying him. And so that connects to us sometimes as we're sharing, as we're trying to point people to Jesus, as we're trying to help them see what we see. Some are dismissive. Some are judgmental and even scornful. Some are just sort of indifferent. And others are sorrowful and they, you walk away from the interaction feeling like maybe they would help if they could. Maybe they would bring Jesus into their life if they just felt they had some room. And so I also wonder, can you relate to this? Can you relate? Is Christmas a burden or a blessing? Even for those that would be in church on the first Sunday of December, Christmas can feel more like a burden than a blessing. We've got to get the letter out. We've got to buy the presents. We've got to wrap the presents. We've got to ship the presents. We've got to buy the food. We've got to prepare the food. We've got to get everybody together and do everything, and it's all standing on a razor's edge. And if one thing goes wrong, the whole thing will topple and fall. Is Christmas more of a burden or a blessing? It strikes me that Jesus in his ministry celebrated childlike faith, and I have never found a child that is overwhelmed and burdened by Christmas. They're always excited for Christmas. They can't wait for Christmas. I've never found a six-year-old that says, I just don't know what I'm going to do this year. I don't have time for Christmas. I don't have time for all that goes into it. And maybe there's an element of that childlike faith that Jesus is inviting us to, that it could be a part of our lives this Christmas. It also strikes me that the inn that is mentioned was probably full because of the census. It wasn't normally full. If they had come the year before or the year after, there would have been room for them, but there was this special event, and so that's something we deal with. That's something we have to accommodate, and we have to make sure we're living lives that have room for Jesus. And this illustrates, all of this illustrates, a very important point about limited capacity. You see, the inn had limited capacity. There were only so many rooms. And we have limited capacity. Thank God he has infinite capacity. He never runs out of room. He never runs out of time. He never runs out of love. He never runs out of energy. But I can't say those things about me. I have limited capacity. And our bottom line today, we'll circle back to this several times, is that our limited capacity stresses our priorities. Our limited capacity stresses our priorities. And if you're paying attention, you've already figured out stresses has two meanings in that statement, doesn't it? It's the key word. You see, stress to stress can mean to emphasize or to add importance to. Our limited capacity emphasizes our priorities. But stress can also mean to strain or to add pressure. Our limited capacity 
strains or gives pressure to our priorities at times, doesn't it? The, the fact that we have limited capacity, limited time, limited energy, limited resources puts a strain on our priorities at times and we find out what our priorities really are when they become strained, when there's a little bit of pressure that gets added to them. And so our priorities matter more than we realize because our capacity is limited. It is not unlimited like our Heavenly Father. And I find that this is especially true in regards to time and energy. And that's where people perhaps feel it the most at Christmas. You might be able to get more money. You might be able to save money throughout the year in order to cover all the extra expenses at Christmas. But we all wake up with the same number of minutes in a day. And you can only steal from sleep so long before that becomes a diminishing return, doesn't it? You see, time is a zero-sum game. You can't add to it indefinitely. You can't even really go into debt on it which I would warn you against in regards to finances as well. And often, I find that something good might need to go away for the better and the best to have room in my life. That it's not always bad things that need to go away in order to make room for the better and the best. Sometimes it's good things. And this is where priorities come into place. And that's why our bottom line is that our limited capacity stresses our priorities. So we need to talk about priorities. We need to talk about what priorities really look like and how to think about priorities. And one of the most clarifying things for me when it comes to priorities is a little two-by-two two grid. I love two-by-two two grids. Anybody else? I think two-by-two two grids are great. I got this one from Stephen Covey in uh, Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I've shared it with my staff. I've shared it with other people. You can draw it on a napkin. But you basically draw a line up and a line down. And the line across, everything above the line is important. And for the line in the middle, everything on the left side of the line is urgent. But the things that are below the, the line in the middle, those aren't important. And the things that are to the right of the line in the middle, those are not urgent. And so this creates four different quadrants. And as you walk through those quadrants, as they're numbered on the screen, you can see in quadrant one, those are things that are important and urgent. This needs to be done, and it needs to be done now. There's a deadline, and it's quickly approaching. It is important, and it is urgent. Now, in quadrant two, there are things that are still important, but they're not yet urgent. And I say yet for those of you who like to procrastinate, right? It's not urgent yet, so let's just wait. Let's just put it off. It's still important, but it's not yet urgent. Interestingly enough, performance psychologists, Covey himself, other people have said we should spend as much time in quadrant two as we possibly can, doing things that are very important, that make a difference in our lives and in the lives of others, but are not yet urgent. Because most of us do our best work before it gets urgent, not when we're under the gun. And then you see in, verse, or in quadrant three that it's urgent, but it's not important. These are the little firearm alarms that pop up throughout the day. These are the text messages or the, the social media, you know, the notification bubbles that come up on your phone or, or the phone ringing that we're bombarded. There's more ways to get in touch with us than there ever have been before. I can get text messages, messages through Facebook Messenger. I can get phone calls. I can get FaceTime audio, FaceTime video. Like there are so many ways to be interrupted and many of those things are urgent in the moment, but they're not that important. And so we do well to limit those things as much as we can. And lastly, there are things in quadrant four that are neither urgent nor important. And you would say, well, why on earth would we do that? It's a good question. <laughs> and there are some things that are not eternally significant 
And they're not urgent, and yet we can find ourselves spending a lot of time in quadrant four if we're not careful. That's kind of the downhill that water seems to run to if we're not careful and we're not intentional. And a way to illustrate this that perhaps you have seen before, and I thought through how I might be able to do this in real time with real things, and it was just going to take too long and be cumbersome. So I cheated, and I went on the internet, and I found images that portray this. And so if you've ever seen the idea that your life is a jar through a speaker or through a, you can look this up on YouTube and there's people that walk through this. But the idea is your life is a jar and then the jars that we have on screen there, that one on the left is filled about two-thirds of the way with sand. Well, sand is all the little things. Sand is, is the emails and the phone calls and the social media and the things that maybe are not that important, but they sometimes feel urgent or we just find ourselves doing them. And the idea is that if you fill your life with too much sand, then when you get to the things that really matter, the, the, the smaller rocks that you see in the second jar and the big rocks that don't even fit in the jar anymore. If we fill our lives with the things that aren't that important and we prioritize the wrong things, then there's not room for what really matters. Our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with those closest to us, with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, with our family members and our friends. And we find all these demands on our time. So you say, well, what do you do? Well, you dump it out and start over. And so the second set of images shows how you solve this. You, you empty that out and you put the first things in first. And I love that it's a rock. The rock, Jesus Christ, our rock. He's got to go in first because he can't be hanging out, sometimes getting a little attention, sometimes not. We put the most important things in first. And then we put those smaller rocks, but still very important, key relationships. Our work that we do is unto the Lord, even though it's for men and women. And other priorities, our physical health, our spiritual and emotional health, these types of things that often get pushed to the side because we're so busy with all the little things. And the interesting thing that happens when you do this, and this is why I wanted to do it in person, that you can fit all the sand in around that, You can fit all the little things in around that if the most important thing goes in first. In fact, you can even take a cup of coffee and pour it in on top and it will fit, which is proof that you always have time for coffee with a friend. You always have time for coffee with Jesus. And so this illustrates a really important point about priorities, but also about margin. And what I don't like about the images on the screen is that they fill the jar to the very top. There's no margin. There's no room for something else. And margin is so critically important. In fact, I've got an image that shows the words that we read this morning, but just bleeding off the edge of the paper in every direction, teeny tiny little font, no space in between. This is the story, Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, that we read. Are you getting it from that? No. But if we go to the next one, there it is. Now people can see it. Because there's margin, there's space in between, there's room in our lives to accommodate something else, something more. And I find that this, the impact of margin is particularly important in the area of our time and our resources. That, it, that so many people live undisciplined lives with no time margin in their lives, no time for anything else. They are scheduled every minute of the day or their finances are in the same shape or both. They, they don't prioritize their time or their money. They, they spend off the page in both directions. 
And yet if we'll create some margin in our lives, then when something like Christmas comes along, there's space for it. Something temporary comes along, maybe a challenge or a crisis or an emergency. There's space, and we can accommodate that for a season, and then we can let that go eventually. Or if it's going to be a permanent thing, we can eventually reprioritize our lives, and we can let something go off to make room for the new reality. And I wrote in my notes that margin in our lives before Christmas has a lot to do with how we perceive Christmas and all that comes along with it. Margin in our lives before a crisis has a lot to do with how that crisis feels to us. Do we have room for it or not? Can we accommodate? Can we flex? Can we be flexible? Because our limited capacity stresses our priorities. So what do we do? Well, I kind of tipped my hand a little bit. If this is broken, the way that we fix it is we dump it all out and we decide with intentionality what goes back into the jar and in what order. We clear our calendars. We clear our budgets. We start a budget, right? Novel idea. And we choose with our core values, with intentionality, what goes in first. What goes on our calendar first? What goes into our budget first? That we're going to give 10%, we're going to save 10%, and we're going to live on the other 80%. Or we're going to prioritize time in our schedules for the things that matter most. And we are intentional based on our core values. We here at Linwood, we have core values. We talk about those on a regular basis. That we, we value centering our lives on the word. Caring for each other. Leaving a legacy of faith. Those things matter to us. And when we are picking our church calendar or when we are budgeting for our church, those are at the forefront. How are we living out what we value? I would encourage you to do the same for your own life, for your personal life, for your time, for your money. What do you value most? And do those values make their way onto your calendar and into your budget or your check register? We clear our calendar. We put first things first, second things second, last things last or not at all. One of the benefits or the blessings of the sabbatical for me was that I cleared my calendar before I left because I had all these things on my calendar and I have reminders because I'm as absent-minded as you can imagine, probably more than you can imagine. And so I have reminders for everything. And I didn't want to be getting reminders for staff meetings and appointments and things like that that would, I wouldn't be a part of. So I cleared my schedule and when I came back from my sabbatical, somebody that I had talked to during the sabbatical said, be real intentional about what you put back on your calendar and where you put it. Figure out where your prime time is and schedule that with intentionality and build the other things around it. And so one of the big things that I did was I decided Monday morning, Wednesday morning, that's sermon prep. Nothing touches that. I block it out. And I don't know about you, but I've been told and I certainly feel like the the sermons have been better since I got back. I've enjoyed creating them more. I've enjoyed preaching them more because I've been working on them in my prime time. Carving out that time first and foremost and giving that as an offering to Jesus so that it's not getting pushed to the end of the week and and I'm standing up here on a Sunday morning giving you a microwave dinner because I finished it on Saturday afternoon. No, you guys are getting the pot roast now because that stuff is going in on Monday morning and it's got all week to work together and it gets better and better and better as it goes. And I certainly would rather give you guys pot roast than a microwave dinner. And that's just one example. There are many others. And so as we prioritize, you might need to create a to-don't list. How many of you have a to-do list? 
Just a few. Okay. Well, how many of you have a to-don't list? Like, God might tell you there's some things you need to stop doing. Put those on your to-don't list. They're not priorities anymore. And as you look at your priorities, at your time, your money, your people and relationships, I would hope that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that time with Jesus every day goes back into the jar first. That that's a priority. And that you do it during your prime time. If that's first thing in the morning, then you get up and you get your cup of coffee or tea or milk or whatever it is you drink and you sit down with your Bible and you put the Word of God into you and you give time to Jesus. Some of you are not morning people. It would be foolish of you to get up at 4.30 because Pastor Mark does and spend an hour dozing in and out of the Word. But you're night owls and you come alive at 9.30 or 10 when I'm just winding down. And that's your prime time. And you carve out time when it matters most. And you say, this is the most important time of my day and I'm going to give it to Jesus. And it's going to be time that we share together and I'm going to prioritize that time. I got to say, the Spirit led me to talk about in-person worship. Is that a priority in your weekly, monthly schedule? One of the benefits, I think, I hope, of COVID is that online church got a lot better. But for those of you that join us online, there are many of you that you don't have any other option. You can't come because of health reasons or a lot of people that join us online don't even live in the area. But there are people who just kind of got into the habit of watching from home most weeks. Not because they have to, but because it's easier. And I just got to tell you, I saw something that really resonated with me and it said that watching church on TV is a lot like watching a fire on TV. You can see it, it's beautiful. You can hear the crackling, but there's no warmth. And there is warmth here. And you bring warmth here. And so if you can be with us, I would encourage you to be with us. We miss the warmth that you bring, and you miss the warmth that is available for you here. So that's talking about time and maybe a few uh, things that, that might change in our priorities with our time. But I also, I don't want to move on from money because we talk about money in this church because Jesus talked about money. You read the Gospels and he talked about money as much as he talked about just about anything else. Money matters. It's, he said things like, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. Where your money is, that's where your heart is. And, and so it's, a, it's an important thing. And... We teach the storehouse tithe. We teach that you bring 10% into the church and you give that to the church for the ongoing ministries of the church, which our church is giving away 25 to 30% of all the money that comes in to our missions partners and to local and, and foreign missions and to our Wesleyan headquarters and so forth. And so I want to encourage you wherever you are to evaluate, is that a priority? The Old Testament teaches clearly that we should give a tithe. Jesus affirmed that in his ministry. Paul added generosity on top of it. And so, if you're giving nothing, maybe the shift is to give something, to start somewhere, to run from zero and say, this is a priority, I'm going to make it a priority. Then if you go from something to scheduled, now it's a regular priority. And maybe you start with 2% because you can't imagine 10%, but you say next year we'll give 4 and the year after that we'll give 6 and then pretty soon we'll be at a tithe. And a tithe is a wonderful place to end up, but it's a terrible place to stop because generosity gives over and above because God went over and above with us. We give generously over and above as well. 
And so go from nothing to something, something to scheduled, and scheduled to sacrificial. Sacrificial giving means you live differently because Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Your finances are different because Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And he is worth it. The last thing I'll say about priorities is that the people, that there are people in your life that should be rocks that go in right away. Do they know that you're, that they're a priority in your life? Do they feel that? Do they, does it come through on your calendar and the way that you spend your time and your energy? Do they know that they are a priority? If you're married, aside from your relationship with Jesus, that marriage relationship is your highest priority. If you have children, they, they go in. Parents, brothers, sisters, extended family, friends, there are people that God places in our lives. And they need to go in and they need to be a priority. And so all of this leads me back to Jesus' words right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount when he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff is going to be added to you. God knows you need it. If you seek him first, if you seek his righteousness first, everything else falls into place. And if you seek everything else first, nothing falls into place. It just doesn't work. And there's an interesting story in the Gospel of Luke, and I realize I'm running out of time, and so I apologize for that. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus has a great opportunity for a teachable moment to illustrate this importance of priorities. And if you're familiar with the story, he's visiting Mary and Martha And he showed up somewhat unexpected, I believe, based on the context. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet just listening to him. And Martha is working herself into a frenzy in the kitchen, trying to get everything ready. And you can just feel her getting madder and madder that Mary is not in there helping her. And finally she comes in and she says, Jesus, tell her to come help me. Expecting Jesus to come into her corner and, and to address Mary. And here's what Jesus says instead, Martha, Martha. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. This is priority right here. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen to spend time with Jesus, and I'm not going to tell her not to. You see, our limited capacity stresses our priorities. So moving quickly, if you're wanting to address this, if you're dumping out your jar and you're putting your first things in, and you're feeling Like, I just can't do this. I can't make the change. I can't. I want to encourage you, instead of saying, I can't because, when it comes to reordering your priorities, to say, you know, I could if. And just finish that sentence. Just write it out on a piece of paper, on a blank line. I could if. And then you finish that. And maybe I could start giving if I dialed back my cell phone plan, or I canceled cable, or I freed up some resources that are just sand in my life. Not I can't because, but I could if. And once you write out a few I could if statements, then I want you to do one more thing, and that's to say, I will buy. I will make the change, whatever the change is, whatever the if was, I will buy. And give yourself a deadline or a way of doing that. I will create this time or this space or this resources by eliminating this or by canceling that. This is called a statement of intention and psychologists talk about how powerful this is. That this is one of the most important things that you can do is write a statement of intention. That I will do this by doing this. I will accomplish this by doing that. 
so that our lives are lived on purpose with priorities, with the right priorities, that our lives would magnify Christ, not ourselves, not others or the things around us that this world tries to get us to prioritize. And you might need to involve some people if you're married. You should certainly make this a a marriage conversation. You might get some great ideas by involving other people. One of the things that I came out of sabbatical with was that I should involve more people in the creative process in mapping out sermon series and those types of things. And I tell you what, I've gotten great, great insights from Pastor Sandy and Pastor Zach, from our residents, from Michael, from Keith, as I bounce ideas off of them, as I bring them into the story, into what I'm thinking about They have great wisdom to offer or great ideas or have you thought about this? And I don't always do it, but I I often do it and I find that it, it has a tremendous impact. And I've even found that sometimes I delegate something that was a chore for me, a life draining chore for me, and somebody thanks me. Oh, I get so much joy out of doing that. Thank you so much. I'm like, I've been doing that for three years and hating every minute of it and you love it? Are you kidding me? So sometimes when we delegate or when we outsource and we invite somebody else to come alongside us, we actually give them something we hate that they love. doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I give them things that I hate that they hate as well, but it is what it is. You see, our limited capacity stresses our priorities. Our priorities really matter. And so I want to ask you, maybe what does this look like for you right now? As our worship team comes up and prepares to lead us in response... What does this look like for you this year at Christmas? Are you stressed out? Are you just running, burning the candle at both ends? No margin? How could you create a little margin? How could you prioritize? Who could you invite into that conversation? Do you need to dump it all out and start over and make the first things first in your life? Maybe you're doing pretty good and you're like, I'm just right, I got a little margin, things come and go, but I can usually flex with it, I'm okay then I would encourage you to continue with that and to protect that margin, to protect those boundaries. But there may be some in this room or that are watching online and you know you've got some excess margin in your life. You've got too much margin and not enough impact. And you could come alongside somebody, maybe a stressed out single mother working two jobs, and you could bring some of your financial margin to help meet some of her financial needs. You could bring some of your time margin to watch the kids or, or to give her an opportunity to go get some time by herself, whatever the case might be. Be creative. Think about this. But there are people in this room that have some excess margin. And you could be intentional with that margin. You could be an ambassador for Christ with that margin. And you could help someone. So however you choose to respond, the altars are always open. If you come to the middle altars, these two in the center, we'll assume you'd like to pray alone. If you want to come down and have somebody pray with you, go to the far sides, the far right, the far left, and somebody will come and pray with you and come pray for you. If you want to come to the cross and write out a prayer request and, and roll it up and place it on that cross, or if you just want to make an altar where you're seated, an altar at home, and ask God to work with you in this area, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you are enough and that in you we are enough. And we have nothing to prove to anyone at any time for any reason. Because when God looks at us, if we are in Christ, he sees your righteousness. And so let us let that take the pressure off of us. 
And let us respond in faith to what your spirit has said to each one of us. Help us to have Christ-like priorities. That the things that mattered to you that we can see so clearly in scripture would matter to us. And that we would live lives of purpose, on purpose, for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.